commission got out a month or so ago that the, that the meeting was to be held as all the other ones. <coughs> you checked it. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so hopefully everybody who wants to come is, uh, is here. Uh, I'd like to welcome Professor Richard Samuels from MIT. Uh, this is the fourth and maybe penultimate, uh, stay tuned, um, lecture in the uh, lecture series on leadership difference. Um, I'm particularly thrilled to have Professor Samuels here uh, because I discovered his book uh, just by looking at the Cornell Press publications. I had no foreknowledge of it until I got the brochure from Cornell and I saw Machiavelli's Children there as the title and I was totally thrilled at the possibility uh, because in my leadership seminar I start with Machiavelli and I thought it would be very nice to, uh, to update him uh, to uh, contemporary comparative politics uh, literature. And it turns out in reading the book uh, that uh, I've been totally fascinated, was totally fascinated with the first time I read it and it's been every time since and I've used it in the leadership seminar and I've read it too so again it really represents I think a major advance in studies of agency uh, more broadly, leadership more specifically in political science. Um, Richard Samuels is the Ford International Professor of Political Science director of the Center for International Studies at MIT. He's the founding director of the MIT Japan uh, program. He served as head of the MIT Department of Political Science between 1992 and 1997, and as vice chairman of the Committee on Japan of the National Research Council until 1996. He's been awarded three Fulbright fellowships, an Abe fellowship, and the National Science, that is Abe, right? I mean, this yeah. is a Japanese reading. Thank you. A Thank reading. You. Thank you. Appreciate that. Abe fellowship. Cultural <laughs> sensitivity abounds. <laughs> and a national, that's all those trips in the reader. Um, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I couldn't resist. That's all right. I'll get you in Chicago. Um, and the National Science Foundation Research Grant to support five separate extended research trips to Japan, enabling a total of seven years of field research in Japan. Uh, and so he has quite a distinguished career, but as I say, what really turns me on is this book, Machiavelli's Children, which I think makes an enormous contribution, maybe to our understanding of Italy and Japan. I can't evaluate that very well, but certainly to our understanding of the theory of uh, agency. Uh, well, that's, that's a very generous introduction. I, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the chance to, to be with you, and I'm seeing a lot of old friends, which is really always very special. So thank you for your hospitality. Um, the book, uh, and thank you for bringing it. I usually flog it. Um, <laughs> is there going to be a paperback version there is, by the time I, I teach it again? In the, in the spring. Which would be, yeah, they, they like to do this. Uh, they wait a year. Um, it starts with a puzzle. And, and it's, it's very straightforward. There's no, uh, no math here. Uh, our, our, that our common sense tell, tells us that leaders matter, that their, their decisions matter. Uh, but that social science, by and large, uh, our theories tell us that constraints are what determine most important things. And my ambition in the book is to explore uh, how much we have to gain by examining leadership and uh, leaders and the strategic and the tactical and, and really, above all, uh, the moral choices that leaders make. Uh, because uh, history is is uh, not only a tale of great men and women, uh, it's not only a tale of their wills and, and their imagination, uh, but it's partly that, and that part of what it, uh, of of that uh, has been uh, has been sort of squeezed out of our understandings to a greater extent than I think is is helpful. Uh, 
uh, we need to include leaders in our, in our understanding of the world and in our reckoning, uh, I think, of, of uh, what's possible and what's desirable uh, in human societies. Again, the moral dimension is something that I think we ought to be paying more and better attention to as social scientists. So in the book, I, I try to do this in two of the world's most constrained settings, uh, that is Italy and, and, and Japan, to show how leaders routinely strain at uh, uh, and, and really stretch to a considerably greater extent than we are have always given them, have ever given them credit for, usually give them credit for, stretch the constraints that, you know, I stipulate. We'll start by stipulating that constraints matter, that constraints exist. That's not a problem. Um, but arguing against the constraint-based model is, I know, not going to win me many friends in the social sciences. And I, again, because I think most of, the, most of our theories do privilege, uh, privilege these constraints. Each of the social science disciplines, it seems to me, and, and uh, I know in this group I, I am prepared to stand corrected, um, uh, has told its own version of a great forces story, uh, that great forces are intervening to reduce choice, uh, reduce the range of choice, that the, the broad repertoire of scholarly explanations that we've inherited, that we've built in some cases, um, has left uh, too little room, it seems to me, for human agency in general or for leadership in particular. Uh, so, you know, just to really simplify enormously and with apologies to, uh, uh, to those of you um, in these disciplines. Hi, Brad. Yo, <laughs> Koso. <laughs> um, um, the great forces I have in mind is our, uh, our personality in, in psychology and utility and economics and power and political science, uh, structure and sociology and culture and anthropology, and I'll get back to each of these uh, along the way. Certainly I'll get back to the issue of culture because I think that, that, the, that, that a way, there's a way to think about uh, culture as, a, as utilitarian to, to bring economics and, and anthropology together in a way that makes sense, particularly in the context of the histories that I'm going to tell you about uh, Italy and Japan. And to be sure, there are, there are emerging scholarly traditions that are more ecumenical than the ones that I've uh, attempted to uh, confront in this, in this book. But um, still, it seems to me, the range of, of constraints continues to dominate and I think in some, to some extent cloud our, our analytical lenses. So there are two questions really uh, for me in the book and I think in our discussion, I hope uh, in our discussion today. One is, um, are, are real leaders, uh, leaders in the real world that we can study and, and explore, as constrained as most scholarship assumes, as most theory uh, presumes? And what evidence do we have to support uh, an assault on privileging the privileging of constraints and the discounting of choice? Now, that's not the only battle. Uh, at, by no means is it the only battle. Um, there are lots of battles to be fought. Another is, is to fight a battle. Maybe the bulk of, of what I do in the book and maybe what I'll do in the talk is to pick a fight with conventional ideas about leadership uh, in two, these two countries, in, in Japan and Italy. Um, so you know, just think about it uh, for just a moment. So if a Martian landed in the middle of the Ginza uh, you know, 15 or 20 years ago and did what all Martians do, which is to ask a question, or to, or to actually make a demand, take me to your leader, right? That's what Martians do. My, my goodness, one old friend after me. Um, how are if, if he said, take me to your leader, he would have had a lot of possible destinations depending upon who his interlocutor was. Uh, 
if uh, some would have taken him up Harumidori, some of you know Tokyo. So you're in the Ginza and you go straight up Harumidori. And you go up that way and you can be taken to the imperial palace if, if, if the interlocutor thought that the emperor was the leader. Or you could have veered off to uh, Nagatacho if the uh, interlocutor thought that the liberal democratic party and the political uh, actors were the leaders. Or he could have taken you just around the corner to Kasumi Gaseki and he would have taken you to the, bureau, the bureaucrats. And if Chalmers Johnson was the interlocutor. Um, <laughs> you know, there are a great many places where you could have been, uh, you could have been taken. Um, today, I think most Japanese would be confused by the question. And I think, uh, I think the Martian would be really disappointed in the answer. It, it's I think we're at a stage in Japan, at least, where the notion of Japanese leadership is nearly oxymoronic. It just, it, it's a real problem. Now, I don't want to completely discount the, the importance of, of Koizumi, uh, Prime Minister Koizumi's, not the importance, but this, the, the extent to which Mr. Koizumi has established himself as a leader and, who has, and has stretched constraints. I think he has, and I hope we'll come back and talk about that. But as a general matter, um, uh, I think it's not unfair to say that the ministries, those, those exalted bureaucrats, have been pretty thoroughly discredited. Um, the business elite is unwilling to step forward to fix what's broken. The LDP, the governing party, is transparently inept. Uh, no one seems to be in charge. Uh, no one seems to be in charge. The question is, how come? How could that be? You know, is it culture? Let's go back to this anthropological great force. Is it culture? Is there something about Japanese culture that makes it impossible for Japanese to step forward and lead? and to shape outcomes, to tilt the, the balance of forces in the real world in the direction of their choosing, which at the end of the day is my very low bar. I hold a very low bar for leadership, and, uh, and I, I may be anticipating a criticism, so let me, let me acknowledge that I, I think I'm anticipating a criticism. I haven't heard this criticism made before, but you know, as I think of it, if, if the bar is simply the ability of an individual leader to, to shift the balance of forces in the direction of his choosing, that may be a low bar. It's not like having, you know, coming up with a grand strategy and changing the world, that's a high bar. So uh, it's a high bar that being practiced uh, these days, unsuccessfully. But that's a different conversation, I guess. We'll have that on November 2nd, each with his own conscience. Um, but uh, this notion of Japanese leadership, this oxymoronic notion, so, so what is this? In the vulgar formulation, and I think too much of what, we've, what has passed for explanations about Japan has been vulgar, um, in the vulgar formulation, uh, leadership in Japan is said to be most effective when it's, when it's exercised administratively, quietly, behind the scenes. The best Japanese leader, the successful Japan, Japanese leader, is never charismatic. He's, 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 he's manipulative. He avoids conflict. Uh, he promotes uh, consensus and cooperation. This, again, is, this is the template, the uh, cultural template. He's always conspiring but he's never inspiring. He, he, he knows how to navigate the web, the Japanese web. Now, uh, I've written, in, in other, other work of mine, I've, I've, I've taken the time to, to, to speak to this issue of, of spiders and webs because um, uh, I have a, a big problem uh, with, with ideas that there is no spider in Japanese politics. I've, I've had this, played with this metaphor for many years. You can't have a web without a spider is, I think, the central point. It just, it just doesn't work. Spiders build their webs, and in fact, Japan has a very rich tradition of leadership. There's nothing inherently, there's nothing about the wiring in Japan. It seems to maybe institutionally, we can talk about contemporary institutions, but historically, there's nothing uh, suggests that there is a, 
there's a deficit here uh, or a necessary set of constraints that has made leadership impossible. To the contrary, um, to the contrary, I'll get to the contrary, but let me talk about Italy for just a moment to sort of set up, because there's a similar kind of a cultural stereotype uh, in the Italian case. That's a, a similar in the sense that it, it, it uh, suggests that, that leadership is, uh, uh, is not the same as in Japan, but 180 percent um, the opposite. That is, in the following sense, Italy is the land of Caesar. Italy is the land of Mussolini. Uh, it's hard to come up with a Caesar or a Mussolini in Japan, but it's not hard uh, in, in, in Italy. Uh, and today, Mr. Berlusconi, those of you familiar with Italian politics know that there is a, uh, some would say, a, uh, a new version of Caesar and Mussolini in charge. And I'm going to show you some cartoons that suggest that a lot of Italians believe that as well. Um, but Italian history is filled with, with leaders who knew how to compromise. So, you know, this is the other, this is this obverse. You, on the one hand, it's a, it's a country in which everyone takes for granted leadership, protagonismo. But, in fact, um, it's filled with the first word you learn when you learn Italian. first word I learned when I learned about Italian politics was trasformismo. Sort of that core idea about how to give, how to take, how to bend, how to compromise, how to do what the Japanese are said to do so well, which is to, 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 um, to give and, and compensate each other in the process of going forward. Iterative games of compensation and reward uh, is supposed to be Japanese. Well, you know, guess what? It's at the core of Italian politics. So while it's wrong, I think there's, that there's no particularly Japanese or particularly Italian way uh, to lead, I think it's also wrong to ignore the record, which is that Italy and Japan have each had their share of strong-willed and weak leaders, uh, enlightened uh, as well as parochial ones, creative as well as caretaking ones, consensual as well as, uh, as, as risk-oriented ones. Each country has had a, a lot of spiders, uh, to go back to the metaphor, and has its own web, to be sure, and I don't want to ignore the web, but to focus analytically, to focus only on the one or the other, I think is, is uh, like most stereotypes, it's engaging, but it's, it's profoundly misleading. So let me go back to the record. What I want to do today is go back to the record and explore some of this um, with you before returning to the idea about the better tools uh, we need to measure the extent to which individuals are routinely able to stretch the constraints under which they are of necessity uh, forced to, to, to operate. First thing to do, I think, in, in this regard is to justify what is, is, for some, I suspect, a fairly silly comparison, which is the Italy and Japan. Um, one alternate title for the book, before it was Machiavelli's Children, there were, as, as Brett will, where's Brett? He will, he will just, he will just, he will verify. There were about 18 working titles for this book along the way, but one of them was The Odd Couple, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, think about, think about uh, Italy and Japan, right? Uh, Felix Unger, Japan is Felix Unger, right? <laughs> Fastidically neurotic. Uh, in its stereotype, this is the stereotype, folks. So don't shoot the messenger. Uh, uh, Oscar Madison, uh, Italy is Oscar Madison, insouciant, slovenly, uh, just doesn't care, making stuff happen, going with the flow, and that sort of thing. That's what Italy seems again in the popular imagination. And you don't have to, you don't have to just deal with with cartoon versions of this. Serious thinkers in both countries have presented uh, Italy and Japan respectively in exactly this way. Ernesto Galli de la Loja, who is, uh, you know, he's a, he's a center-right, some will say very right, but I think center-right um, analyst, uh, political uh, analyst, writer uh, in Italy, says that uh, uh, 
that, that Italy, governing Italy is not difficult, he said. Uh, it's useless. <laughs> not really, I kind of like that, you know. Um, where do we go from here? Uh, and and um, uh, Miyamoto Masao, Miyamoto Masao died a couple of years ago, but uh, some of you may have, may have read his work or, 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 or uh, listened to his lectures. He was actually a government bureaucrat. That's quite an extraordinary. He's a psychiatrist and a government bureaucrat in the health and welfare uh, ministry. Uh, and he labeled Japan as a system that is, and this is his word, neurotic. Um, the point is this, that, that the Japanese, it's, it's another way to get at the point, I suppose. It's not the point, but the Japanese... For those of you who have been to Japan, I know many of you here have. You know, they'll stand at a street corner when the light is red, even though there are no cars coming. And they'll wonder, well, why are we standing? Why don't we just cross the street? There's no cars coming. But they won't. And the, ja- and the Italians wonder why they can't get the lights fixed. <laughs> so this is sort of, the, sort of the general characterization, right? And I want to start with that as differences. Because what I do in the book is I, I weave the differences and the similarities and the Japanese and the Italian together throughout the book as best I was able. And I do it across three substantive areas, maybe functional areas is the way to describe it, um, issues of national identity, issues of national, uh, 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 issues of, of, of the state, uh, and, um, and issues of uh, uh, national power. So I want to I walk through this uh, in, in, a, in a fairly systematic way, in the way that I do uh, in the book, uh, and see where it takes us vis-a-vis leadership. Okay. Uh, differences and similarities, and again with each of these three. They are different. Uh, national identity, start with that. Uh, again, identity, wealth, power. Those are the three. Uh, to state it more clearly. Identity, wealth, and power. Let's start with identity. Um, these are uh, uh, very different stories. Very, very different stories. National identity remained contested uh, far longer in Italy than in Japan. Far longer in Italy than Japan. And after all, in an Italian nation, not just an Italian state in the 1860s, but an Italian nation had to be constructed, had to be created. And some say it never really was. Others say it, it really wasn't until Mussolini got it nailed. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of in that category. I think Mussolini built the Italian nation in a way that uh, he doesn't get credit for because of all the other things that he did. Uh, we'll talk about them, too. But, you know, you go back to the standard, again, like Transformismo, one of the first things you learn about Italian politics, the first phrase you learn, the first statement about Japanese, about, about Italian, I do this a lot, by the way, in this talk. I can get, get it too mixed up. 1861, Massimo D'Azeglio said, we have, this is the year that the Italian state is born, the modern Italian state. He says, we have created Italy, and now we must make the Italians. Okay? That's the story. It's a story of having a state, but not having a nation. And everyone believes and thinks that that's not that's not the uh, the Japanese story. That Japan is this homogeneous, you know, um, single ethnic, racial, linguistic nonsense. Uh, it turns out that the the Japanese also had to make a Japanese nation. Um, Japanese state builders were also confronted with powerful centrifugal forces. Now we're talking about great forces, and in the world of great forces, the force was greater in Italy than in Japan. Certainly, still, you read Fukuzawa Yukichi. Fukuzawa Yukichi wrote in the, as late as the 1870s that we have uh, a government, but we have no nation. And he was talking, he was echoing Dazelia, and he was doing it later. He was doing it almost 15 years later, Fukuzawa, uh, standard 
uh, a major, for those of you not familiar with, with Japan, a major liberal intellectual of, of uh, early uh, modern, not early modern, but, but early industrializing uh, Japan. So it was the manipulation of the emperor, a decision on the part of leaders to manipulate the image of the emperor uh, and, the, and to use Shinto as an organizing force to, to, to bring together people who otherwise weren't um, to create a Japanese identity. It was undertaken by a determined modernizing uh, elite leadership. And their success, it seems to me, exp their success, they knew something, they understood something better than Count Cavour and his colleagues did in, in Italy. And they made it happen in a way. They, maybe, maybe they had some tools that the others didn't have, but the point is not that they had the tools, they used the tools to, to construct an emperor that they could control. And I'm going to come back to this again and again. This is bricolage. It's the central theoretical, and I think it's the central, the, the central conceptual, I don't call it theoretical, it's, it's except the central conceptual <coughs> element of Machiavelli's children. I'm going to come back to it uh, again and again. What the oligarchs did, they, they came to be called the oligarchs because they won, uh, and they were in power for a really long time. The last among them died in the 1920s. There's uh, Yamagata Aritomo, who we'll talk about. I'll show you his picture, too. But they experimented with a polychromatic mix, really. Uh, of a, a sing they had to construct a single dominant memory, which was their project. They were constructing a single dominant memory from that mix that included the sensibilities uh, of the Heian court and the Spartan ethos of the, uh, of the samurai. Again, a lot of fiction in all of this, folks. A lot of fiction. Read Bushido by Mitobe. It's, it's, it's out of a cocked hat, but it worked. Um, they put in the boisterous arts of the Edo townsmen, the austere Puritanism of Tokugawa and Confucianism. What they did was taking bits and pieces of the past, each in a trial and error process, without any assurance of success, um, that, uh, that they could use to justify, to legitimate their, their rule. Uh, so agrarian values would be arrayed against warrior values and Shinto ideas with Confucian ethics, Chinese learning with German practice. I don't know what was legitimate about that, but there you go. Uh, no tool, though, was more powerful than the imperial institution. That was absolutely central. Uh, and the, the Meiji, these Meiji leaders wasted no time whatsoever in, in dispatching agents all across the country, called missionaries, really, state missionaries, national priests, to to in a very well-orchestrated campaign to, to inform the masses about the emperor and to demonstrate, or to, to, to uh, show them how his divine rule would be their, their salvation. So, uh, you get lots of different emperors, this one guy. He was 16. He was a kid, you know. And uh, emperors never, those of you, uh, some of you will know, emperors never really ruled in Japan. Um, they didn't really have political power, you know, the... Uh, the shogun did for, for much of the time before this, 250 years, in fact. But the emperor was an emperor for all seasons. You know, he could be made to look German, or he could be made to look Heian, uh, go way back into the, the, the very beginnings, the, the, the mythic origins of the Japanese, uh, Japanese people. The point is that even the most archaic rituals, and this is right out of Hobbes, but they, 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 this is Hobbes, Baum, and Ranger. I mean, these, these guys you know, could have written uh, Hobbes, Baum, and Ranger's book, because what they were doing was the same thing that, that was the inventing, they were inventing tradition on the fly. Um, they, they, were, they were insecure, and they grasped at whatever they could to, to justify their rule. So the model of this great extended family, this uh, blended, this thing that blended Confucian morality with nativist myth into a distinctive civil religion that, that we hear so much about, 
that created a national view of of things in regional minds. I mean, that's really that's Carol Gluck's phrase, and I think it's a she, it's, she's just got it nailed. A national view of things in regional minds was a construction, and so for for now, that is before it became an empire and extended out into the onto the continent and into Southeast Asia. Um, this family, this Yamato Damashi, this this Yamato golden people of the Yamato race would be biologically Japanese, a single, very old race, pure and homogeneous. Again, Tokuzawa uh, Yukichi notwithstanding. And references to its Korean origins and, and references to its Chinese origins were conveniently buried. And they stayed buried for a really long time. Some of you may be familiar with the, the, the discovery of Korean artifacts on Kyushu in the 1990s, when, or maybe it's the 80s, when the Japanese discovered Korean artifacts in an imperial burial mound. So they just took out the bulldozers and <laughs> covered it up. Can't have that. We can't have that. Um, actually, this changed, and this changed uh, with the 2002 World Cup, when the emperor actually said to the Koreans that they shared that he shared ancestors with them. Huge, and it didn't get it didn't get the sort of attention uh, in the in the Western press that it deserved. It was a huge and very old. Uh, uh, opening uh, to, the, to the Koreans, a one that I think is going to pay off in the long term. Now, that's the Japanese, so this is this construction, the use of the emperor, I, I could go on, but I won't. Um, let me just turn to the Italians. Um, the Italians, unlike the Japanese, were never really quite sure who all they were. Um, so they asked, who the hell are we? Um, and, and we are a people of poets, and we are a nation of explorers. And we are scientists. And in fact, if you go to Eur in, in south, just south of Rome, and you look on the frieze of the buildings down in southern Rome, Mussolini actually put this up on the buildings. Siamo un popolo di poeti navigatori trasmigratori, and so forth. And it's all there. And some, some people say santi, faint, uh, saints. Some people say fanti, infantrymen, but never mind. <laughs> the point is that it's, it's a matter of some dispute. Who the hell are we? Um, we Italians. And the, there's, a, there's a corollary question. And the corollary question is, what the hell unites us? What brings us together? We're, we're all of these things. What, what really are we? Just, we're Catholic? Well, you know, the Italians really aren't Catholic, at least in large numbers. Like that. It was a big communist subculture and, and so forth. So it's not that. So what does, unite, what does unite the Italians? Is it the priests? Is it the Roman Empire? The Roman emperors? Was it Dante? Uh, was it the popes? Was it the invaders? Was it, maybe it was the catastrophes. Maybe, yeah, let's make it the catastrophes. Maybe, you know, and some, for some, it's the heroes. It, it's, the, it's the Caesars and the Mussolinis. But the fact that the risorgimento leaders failed to seize upon an, an idea, a unifying idea, a construction that they could hump and work and make into a national identity is, I think, one of their greatest failures and has had and still has enormous costs. Uh, today, Japan celebrates this ethnic and linguistic and cultural uh, homogeneity, and Italy has more uh, linguistic and, and, uh, uh, and cultural minorities, far greater uh, and far greater regional di uh, disparities uh, than any country in Western Europe. So th th there's a, there's a, there has been a cost, and I think it's a cost of, uh, that you can tie to a failure of leadership and imagination. I mean, there was, after all, a king, uh, in the Risorgimento, who was elevated. Who was that? Well, it was a guy who didn't speak Italian from the Piedmont, the Savoy Kings. Yeah, was huge, I mean, huge mistake. There was nothing attractive about him. Now, maybe there was someone else they could have used, but they, they didn't. 
All right, enough about national identity. The differences extend beyond national identity. Let, let's talk about the, the, the national power in the state itself. And, the, and one sort of fundamental fact, which is that in the Italian case, there was a competitor for the loyalty of the people, and that was the church. And maybe this was a problem, and maybe this was a great force that was a problem. Uh, I, I, I think we need to talk through that. Uh, the church openly confronted and acted upon the state as a check on its power. In fact, the Italian, the liberal state in Italy was created to confront the church. So you start with this. This is not a, not a confrontation that you have in, for the leaders uh, of the young Japanese state. So that the political role of state Shinto and the political role of Christian democracy uh, are very profound, but very, very different. But the fact is that Japanese state builders, as I said, understood something about legitimating power that nearly all of their Italian counterparts missed, and partly as a consequence. It's not just national identity went, was more, was, went further, but the consolidation of state power uh, was fuller and more secure in Japan uh, than in Italy. Well, it didn't seem so at the time, but it was as we look back. Now, there was one Italian leader who got it. He understood it. He, he, <laughs> he really did. And he has no counterpart in Japan. I've already mentioned Mussolini. Um, he has no counterpart in much of the annals, really in the annals of Western civilization. I'm not here to tell you what a wonderful man Benito Mussolini was. Don't go away from this talk thinking that. <laughs> but he was definitely one of Machiavelli's favorite children, so he's worth, he's worth a look. I love this, this cartoon because here he is reading Il Principe. He's reading The Prince. And uh, you could still draw these cartoons in the 1920s, uh, the mid-1920s in Italy. And this guy, Mussolini, is very easy to caricature. I mean, it's, nothing, could be, nothing could be easier. And the problem is, when it's so easy to caricature someone, all we have is the caricature. It's just, that's what we have. So it's too bad. Because he was, it seems to me, a master bricolure. Uh, he, a, a leader capable of using anything that was at hand. And so this notion of bricolage, some of you are familiar with it, I hope, uh, comes from Levi-Strauss. But it's related, really, it's a fundamental idea. You know, it's not from an academic, but it's from George Orwell. Um, he wrote in, in 1984. Not, he didn't write it in 1984. In 1984, he wrote, Who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. I can leave now. That's, that's the lesson. And I wish I had read that before I wrote Machiavelli's Children, because it would be in the book. It's not. Um, but it, is, it really does capture the, the story I'm, I'm trying to tell. And for Mussolini, Rome was the most fecund inspiration uh, for, for him, his most powerful tool. He, he used it more effectively than any Italian leader before or since to inspire, to mobilize, to stir national passion. He wasn't the first one to think of He wasn't the first one to think about anything. I mean, uh, the, the idea of fascism comes from, from, from other places, and the idea of, of using Rome comes from other places, Gioberti, for example. But uh, he, knew how to, he knew how to use it. Um, Rome was the foundation of Western civilization, and fascism, he, he proclaimed, would recapture for Italy uh, the same respect that Rome had, had once enjoyed. So here he is as Caesar. Um, he selectively borrowed the symbols of, of Rome, uh, of the Roman Empire, the Roman salute, the, the fascio, 
that is the sheaf of wheat with the axes uh, in it, the eagle. Roman forms of address were taught in schools. Roman religion, uh, at least until the Lateran Pacts were signed, uh, Roman religion was taught in schools. And then it was one of these, <coughs> it's a typical Mussolini thing. Well, we can't do that anymore. All right, so we'll, we'll teach you Catholicism. But, you know, it, it didn't matter. He would use, uh, and was, he was extremely, prag- let's just say pragmatic. He would use anything that was glorious in Italy. Virtually everything was dubbed as a pre- predecessor, a prefigurer of fascism. He used Dante in the, in the same way. Um, let's see if we have another. This is an American, wartime American view of, of the use of Rome. Uh, I forget where this is from. This is Chicago Daily News. Uh, Great Caesar's ghost. Uh, that's Mussolini in bed. Uh, he, uh, he had his comeuppance. Oh, wait, I'm going to go back one because I want to save that. That's leave it like that for a moment. Um, let's look at the economies just, just real quick. Again, this is the, the, this is the notion of wealth. This is the third of the three on the differences side. Okay, and then we'll go to the similarities and I'll do it again. Um, the same thing, I think the same thing um, uh, uh, applies. You immediately see differences when you think about the two economies. Although they've gone from differences that look like this differences that look like this, and I'll, I'll get to what I'm, I'll show you where the crisscross was. But in the Italian context, the term state control um, is, is an oxymoron. The Italians have had state enterprise and state ownership and any and any and all of this, but um, the idea that the state can actually run something uh, effectively uh, uh, is, is uh, well, if anyone's ever tried to use the Italian posts, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but in Japan, the notion of state control is, in fact, the key idea behind economic development, has been since the 19th century. And the debates have not been about whether you have free markets or state control. The debates have been what kind of state control? Jishitose, autonomous control, or, or kokkatose, state, real state control. Either way, the state was in the middle of a corporatist web um, and it was legitimate in, in, in the middle of that. Um, state participation in markets in Japan has been a fundamental, a fundamental feature, an essence, uh, of the, uh, the trans-war system of Japanese political economy. Uh, but this is a function of choice, too. So I have to step back. You know, this, is, this is a matter of choice. Italy had an extended debate over free trade and protectionism in the 19th century, and they opted for for free trade uh, until it became impossible to sustain it, and then they opted for protectionism, which led them to a trade war, which was disastrous. They just got their timing profoundly wrong (coughs) and really got beat up over it with the French and so forth. They they kept things open until German bankers and Swiss bankers and French bankers and electric utilities, everyone had come into the system, and then they tried to close it, and they lost lost big time. Um, No Japanese... Uh, the, the debate took place in Japan, but the debate was really pretty one-sided. The people who ran Japan from the 1870s on never really took liberalism seriously. Um, and even when the costs of the program of, of, uh, of, of state-led um, industrial nurturing, we, we say, um, uh, became too great, the cost became too great for the fiscal system to bear, um, the finance ministers found ways to keep it intact. I won't go into the details here, but I'd be happy to during Q&A. The point is there's a legacy here for both countries. Italian leaders, particularly the liberals and the Christian Democrats in the early post-war period, um, the first thing they reached for um, was to seize upon the prospects for an open European trade regime. They went right to the liberal 
to the liberal model and they fought for it. They didn't, it wasn't a perfect invo- invocation of it, but that's what their goal was, right? The Japanese had just lost the war and they just stayed with the corporatist model, you know, with a few trimmings. Corporatism with some trimmings. Um, they built barriers to the dismantling of barriers and they liberalized while they protected and that was the Japanese. So there was this fundamental sense that, um, uh, but they had choices and they had debates and there were pressures to do otherwise. Nothing was predetermined in these, in these choices. Now, when I say they crisscross, and this is where it gets very interesting, it seems to me, is the way in which Italy and Japan traded places in the, 19, the 1990s. Japan was stable. Japan was consensus-oriented until then. Suddenly, Japan is unhinged, and Japan is unstable, more so than, and, 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 and more contentious than Italy, which suddenly got its act together. Business-labor consultation in Italy in the 1990s succeeded, at least for a time, but in a very big way, it collapsed in Japan all that consultation. It just went away. The, the Italian economy grew. The Japanese economy um, slowed and stalled. And now Japan, which is the model of the strong state, is riddled with, as I've already indicated, with bureaucratic incompetence, with corruption. And it's the technocrats who were supposed to be governing Japan, so it's the technocrats in Italy who fixed what was, what was broken um, in, in Italian governance and who steered it into the European mainstream. Um, not entirely on their own, uh, not entirely of their own volition. Here's an interesting great force. It was called the uh, European, the, the common European uh, currency. Um, but nonetheless, the, the choices were made within Italy, and they went, they went in that direction. Now, if Italy wasn't yet a, a truly strong state, it became a surprisingly competent one. Uh, it grew. It, it consolidated a massive public debt. The poster child for public debt, what not to do, was Italy in the 19, early 19, by the early 1990s. 104 percent. The number was always the the, uh, the figure on uh, debt to uh, to GDP. You know, the Japanese are moving toward 200 percent right now. They're about 160, 180 percent, and uh, it's it's not going anywhere. It's not getting better fast. Japan went on a you talk about drunken sailors. They went on a spending spree uh, to, to, in a failed effort to stimulate. Uh, the slowing economy. Italian reforms went further than Japanese reforms. And so it was front page news last year on the Asahi Shimbun front page, it's now a year and a half ago, uh, when Moody's ranked, uh, ranked Italy ahead of Japan in terms of the bond rating, the national, the national bonds. And by the way, Botswana was also listed ahead of Japan. <laughs> and I'm not sure which upset the Japanese more, to be quite honest. So, as a colleague of mine in Italy says, Corrado Molteni, a really interesting character, he, he also studies Japan. He says, look, in the 80s, the, the Italians wondered if the, Jap- if the Japanese can succeed, why can't we? And, and now, the Italian, now the Japanese are saying, look, if the, the Italians can succeed, why can't we? Let me talk about the similarities and uh, uh, try to, and I know I'm already speaking fast, I'm going to even speed it up further because um, I want to have time for, for a Q&A. Um, the fact is that few nations have had as many important similarities and common features as Italy and, and Japan uh, have had. Their political lives have proceeded in an uncanny parallel uh, for more than a century. Neither country even existed as a modern state at the time when, when the United Kingdom, when, when well, Great Britain uh, and the United States had already embarked on their industrial revolutions uh, in both countries, that is both Italy and Japan, uh, rapid late industrialization uh, was accompanied by groping experimentation uh, with parliamentary democracy for a time, uh, collapsed, succumbed to authoritarianism, and each paid the same price uh, for uh, that 
collapse into authoritarianism, which was devastation in the Second World War and occupation by American lawyers, I mean uh, soldiers, um, <laughs> during the construction of new constitutions uh, and a formal commitment to the new American world order. That was the price. Now, that's a great force. Let's stipulate. That's, a, that's, a, that's the mother, maybe not the mother of all forces, but that's a great force. And I'm not going to try to, you know, we're going to talk about within that context what kind of choices were possible. But general statements that attempt to capture the nature of, of, of Italian democracy sound really Japanese. Um, uh, you have to sort of know the textbooks on Japan written by Japanese to appreciate this statement about Italy, which was written by Italians. Quote, Italy is in the name a democratic republic, but it's never experienced the sort of classic epic-making revolution uh, on which nations like France have founded their democratic tradition. It's, that is Italy's, modern, fluid, industrial society is a recent accretion superimposed on a hierarchical, unchanging, quasi-feudal society. Italy, this is about Italy, but this paragraph just goes right into a Japanese textbook with ease. The author goes on, in the, again, in the opening pages of the textbook, how could a Western-type democracy evolve here in a society that is so basically conservative, stratified, and profoundly rooted in the manners of a pre-industrial age? So this, this, I, this sense of, of, of being backward is, is really powerful in both countries. Um, but today, both states are democratic, both are rich, uh, high rates of electoral participation, basically free and fair elections. Civil liberties are guaranteed. There are formal checks on central authority. There is civilian control over the military in both countries. The rule of law exists in social and, 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 and economic relations. There are robust civil societies in both countries. And in Japan, I'm happy to report, it's getting more robust all the time. And both countries exhibit the same kinds of pathologies uh, that frustrate you know, some of the more progressive requisites of what a democratic system ought to look like. Frequent changes of government, extensive corruption, which I've already mentioned, limits to effective participation. Each is struggling to re refine and redefine its place um, in the wake of the Cold War. And so what I'm saying here is that both countries are still changing, and they're still changing in parallel again. A similar kinds of great forces are, are impinging upon them. But let me go back in time and bring it up to the present because I think it's really very relevant. Efforts to repair the status quo in both countries have been a fixture of Italian and Japanese political life since the 1860s, clearly since the 1860s when these states were created. But from the very, very moment that the states were, were created, both countries have pursued parity uh, with the rest of the world. Um, Japanese leaders were, were determined to undo the unequal treaties uh, that had been foisted upon them by the great powers and were determined, in their words, to catch up and surpass the West um, and become, in their words, a first-class nation. Um, I love this pairing uh, of, of cartoons. The one on the left, uh, you're, yes, you're left, you're seeing the same thing I am. The one on the left is from, uh, I found it in, in it was from a, 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 a local uh, weekly called La Rana. I found it in the Arte Ginasio in, in Bologna, and I, it's marvelous. Here you've got the great powers all trying to impress the mistress of diplomacy. You have the Russians, the French, the Brits, uh, and uh, the, the Prussians, and so forth. Um, and, and you've got the Italians. And the Italian's tripping over his sword, and he's got this weird feather in his hat, and, and you know, he's got spats on, and he doesn't look like he's ready to rumble. Um, but there he is, and the term is l'ultima delle grande potenze, the least of the great powers. 
the last of the great powers. What they wanted was a place at the table in the concert of Europe. That's the point. The cartoon on the right is from uh, five years later. It's just after the Japanese had defeated the Russians, as you can see, in the uh, Russo-Japanese War, so it's 1905. 1906. The same great powers are there. Now, these guys are actually awed by the Japanese, but the Japanese are describing themselves as childlike. This is not a, a, a big guy. He's a little guy, uh, just like uh, the little Italian guy, because it, Japan is not yet a nation of the first rank, Itoko. It's not there yet. Um, so, this notion of being adolescents and so forth. Um, gets carried on, uh, gets carried on into the post-war, despite the fact that these countries are both immensely prosperous, each sits comfortably within the G8. Um, but the discourse on the persistent shortcomings of each country is really the, the thing that catches one's attention when you read about uh, what leaders and their, their, uh, the mass public are, are talking about. The great chases in Italy and Japan of parody, prestige, never really ended. Um, never really ended. I had one of the great, for the graduate students in the room, I had one of the, the I, I hope this happens to each of you, and I, I suspect it's already happened to the faculty in the room, but it's one of those great moments in research when you find something and it's just, it's just you, you would kick yourself if you hadn't found it, and uh, even worse if you had ne never discovered it, because it, it fit in, made so many pieces come together. I was in a bookstore at Feltrinelli in, in Bologna, and I looked on the shelf, and I, I saw a book called Un Paese Normale. Now, Un Paese Normale is a normal nation, a normal country. That is the catchphrase, and had been the catchphrase in the 1990s, in Japan, Futsu no Kuni. And I saw it, and I went, whoa, a normal nation. Who in the world wrote that? What academic wrote that? And I pulled it off the shelf, and it was Massimo D'Alemma. He was the prime minister. And it was one of those wonderful moments where you could then, you know, you can look at that book and you can figure out that the kinds of concerns, the sense of not being normal, of being backward, of having to catch up, of having to achieve certain things to look more like the rest of the world, was still happening. I hadn't quite understood that until I found the book and started inquiring after that. Um, so let me get to the, in the inquiries, the inquisition, the inquiries um, that, that, that were built around these similarities and these differences because they focused on leadership choices. And what I did um, in this book was to take pairs of Japanese and Italian leaders, try to control to the extent possible for the, the similar kinds of structural constraints, similar kinds of great forces that were operating on each, and have a look and see how they constructed the choices that they made and where they wanted to take uh, their, their countries. Um, again, stipulated, great forces, economic, social, political forces were unleashed by modernization and certainly by late development. But the constraints on the leaders, uh, as significant as they were, masked enormous room for maneuver, uh, uh, room that the most able among these leaders uh, exploited. So what I want to do today, the book is it's 15 or 20, I don't need, I lost count, uh, paired comparisons um, uh, across 150 years in two countries. It was, it was a, it's a fairly big undertaking. I just want to talk about three, and then I'll stop, um, maybe two. Um, one of my favorites are these two guys, because I did say the Cold War was a major constraint. Um, this is Alcide de Gasperi on the right, uh, Nuomo Solo, a, a solitary man, uh, and, and Yoshida Shigeru on the left. The, both were prime ministers of the center-right coalition in early in the post-war. Uh, 
made their deals with the Americans. Um, oh, Yoshida, I should add. Uh, one man, Yoshida. One man is one man. It's a, exactly the same. Uh, some, for some, it's an epithet. Uh, but, but the question is, within the context of the Cold War, neither, neither was free enough to choose sides. Um, but each really deftly manipulated his country's dependence uh, 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 to gain maximum national advantage as the free world was being formed. Each was centering uh, among a wide, wide array of domestic political forces. And you have to remember, I think it's really important to remember, that while the United States cared a lot about whether Japan would stay neutral or Japan would go off into the communist camp, it cared only that Italy might go off into the communist camp. It didn't care if Italy stayed fascist. It didn't care about democracy in Italy. It didn't care about any of that any more than it cared about, about continued fascism in Portugal or in Spain uh, or in other, uh, other countries. Uh, it was de Gasperi who made this Mediterranean... Remember where Italy is. I should have a map. But Italy is not in the North Atlantic. He, made, he was the one who took the lead to make sure that Italy would be part of NATO. He was the one, who, because he was a German speaker, he's from, from the uh, Alto Adige, uh, he was able to speak over beer uh, with, with uh, Adenauer uh, and, and, and Schumann uh, to, to work out the details, the beginnings of the European steel and coal community. Um, he brought Italy into a, part, uh, into a, set, a, a set of relationships that Italy could easily easily have been excluded from. Um, Yoshida, uh, I mean, oh, the other thing I should say is the Vatican was perfectly happy to go neutral. The Vatican um, uh, was worried that by allying with the United States, uh, it, was, it, would, uh, it would hurt its power uh, and, and the, the, the resurgence of its power uh, on the peninsula and elsewhere. And it was, it was de Gasperi who convinced a reluctant United States uh, to support Italian participation in all of these activities. Um, so, you have, the, you have choices made that weren't necessarily different than the two, but created in, in fundamentally different ways that had enormous consequences for where these countries ended up during the Cold War. Uh, what Yoshida did, I think, makes him uh, the most outstanding political leader in post-war Japan, because Japan's grand strategy, this is the subject of my next book, please ask me about it. <laughs> Japan's grand strategy is, is run through uh, organized around the Yoshida Doctrine. That is what it's about. And that Yoshida Doctrine was a bargain he made with the United States that the guys to the right of him in the party were opposed to, and the guys, all everyone else to the left was opposed to. He constructed a solution that nobody saw, that nobody understood, nobody imagined. And it stuck in a way that is today the basic security doctrine of Japan and the, the glue that holds together the U.S.-Japan alliance. Again, I really would love to talk about that. Randy, are you still here? Okay. <laughs> Ask me about that, Randy. Okay. Um, oh, good. good. <laughs> it's an old, it's an old trick. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know. So. That's all for that. Yeah. I love, <laughs> love having you here. Glad you came. <laughs> okay. So. Um, these guys, uh, Kishi and Fanfani, ask me about them if you like. More, but let me. This is the last pair I want to. I, I'm running out of time because I, I just always do this. I really love this material. These guys, the, the decisions made by these two characters were probably the most consequential in domestic politics in Italy and Japan uh, since the end of World War II, and neither one of them was a prime minister. The guy on the left, Fuwa Tetsuzo, 
um, was the head of the Japan Communist Party until very recently. He's now sort of retired as the, into the chairmanship. And Akilio Ketbo, who um, was the guy who, on November 12, 1989, three days after the wall came down, went to Bologna and spoke to a group of World War II veterans, partisans. They're old. They're on canes and wheelchairs. The deep, deepest part, most profoundly communist part of the, communist, of the sizable communist subculture in Italy. And he said to them, we need una cosa nuova, something new. We need una volta, a change. We've got to have, this will not, this is November 12th. The wall had just come down. He'd been thinking about this for some time. And he realized that, that communism, that, that, that Marxism, Leninism, communism, even as practiced by the parliamentary practitioners uh, in, the, in the PCI, in the Italian communists, it, wasn't, it was not a route to power. And if, if they wanted power, they had to change their name and become something else. He understood that. I interviewed uh, Fuad. My Italian is not, is not good enough to do interviews uh, uh, with, with political leaders or bureaucrats, but it, my Japanese certainly is. So uh, it, there's a little imbalance in my ability to, to, to collect data for parts of this book. But I did interview Fuad. It was the most pathetic interview I've done. And I, hundreds, of, hundreds of interviews over five, five big projects over 25 years. It was sad. Here he was sitting in his office with sound trucks, right-wing sound trucks out on the outside, blaring, uh, just screeching at, at everyone, and sort of trying to talk under that, that noise, um, and insisting that scientific socialism has always been correct. It will always be correct. The problem was guys like Lenin. Um, the problem was guys like Lenin, not guys like Marx and Engels, and uh, we're going to stay the course. And so when I said to them, you know, the Italians actually got rid of the idea of uh, uh, vanguard of the proletariat, and they lost terms like, uh, you know, these kinds of things, revolution, you know, kakume. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, no, 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 we're never going to change that. Well, that was a time when it was all, he was already leading a fairly pathetic parliamentary force. That parliamentary force was cut by almost two-thirds in the next election, and it, almost, it doesn't really exist as an organized political force today. It's down to, uh, I think it, it went down to six or nine uh, seats in the Japanese diet of 512, uh, 511. I'm sorry, 500 in the lower house now. That's the old number. Um, and uh, it's just not a force. Now, I think it could have been a force. I think he could have done in Japan what Achilleo Keto did in Italy, which was make that choice, find a way to, to work with the center, the rest of the center left, and take power, which is exactly what the former communists did. Not, not the refondazione, not the, the, the people who refused to change the name, the refounded communists, but the Olive Coalition. And the center left, until Berlusconi came back, uh, had been governing and governing effectively and, bro effectively and brought Italy into the mainstream. Of the uh, of the European of modern Europe, okay. Big choices, consequential choices. So, so where are we with this? Let me let me end um, by talking about some of the sort of the central lessons. Let me see. There's another one of these guys. Oh, we can we can talk about choices on the right too. I I, I, I had to put this up because Berlusconi here and he's dressed as Caesar, uh, uh, kind of nice. Uh, it's the Mussolini in him, I suppose. Um, but there's actually, in the, in the doorway, the original cartoon in the doorway has Gianfranco Fini, who's actually the, the, uh, the inheritor of the fascist party, the Alianza Nazionale. Uh, Fini, 
Uh, he's standing there and saying, Aspetta, Silvia, wait a second, he says. You know, the, the returns aren't in yet. It was on the eve of the election. And he's all, he's all dressed up for the coronation. Um, look, he, this, the, the story here is, 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 let's go back to culture, at least one, the, the one great force. Um, it's not irresistible, to be sure. It's not all determining. But it can be, it can be uh, very useful when used effectively. And this is what I meant by saying a utilitarian, a utilitarian um, purpose uh, of culture. Because culture inspires uh, and legitimates strategies. That's the story, of the, that's the Italian story, certainly in the Mussolini case. It's certainly the Japanese story more consistently. Um, it's Ito Hirobumi, it's Yamakatari Tomo, it's even Yoshida Shigeru. Yoshida Shigeru in the post-war said, he went back into, into the 1920s and said, Japan has a democratic tradition. You know, this is Japan has a democratic tradition. Well, I guess it did. It worked. It stuck. He made it work. He constructed it. Um, he, the point being that you can do that um, um, and give culture great, great force. Um, and we see it in Mr. Berlusconi. This is Berlusconi understands this in the way that Mussolini did. And I'm not saying they're both fascists. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying, though, others will, will suggest that. Um, but what I'm saying is he, he understood something very important. When his main op- opponent in the early, uh, well, I guess it's the late 1990s now, Umberto Bolsi, tried to identify the North as a... As a, as a a regional, having a regional identity separate from Italy, and he was going to take uh, this nativist north away from Italy. He declared the, the creation of the Republic of Padania. Pure fiction. Berlusconi countered with more pure fiction and a, a, uh, a term, a phrase, a mobilizing phrase, Forza Italia. His, his, his political party was called uh, Go Italy. It's a soccer cry. People, you know, it's a soccer chant. It came out of uh, AC Milan, those of you soccer fans. You know, you know where it comes from. But Forza Italia, Forza Milano, whatever. The point being, he understood that there really was, by this time, a national identity in Italy and that people weren't going to succumb to secessionist political forces. And, in fact, Bossi was, was uh, deeply um, wounded in the, in the campaign and brought in on a leash. I have another cartoon. Is it here? No, end slideshow. Okay, um, there's another cartoon I'd be happy to show you with, with Bolsi on a leash. Anyway, this, we don't know what Japanese leaders or Italian leaders, what parts of the past they're going to pick up and use going forward. That's, that's just not something we know. But following Machiavelli, I think we, we ought not be surprised by what they, they select or how well uh, they succeed. I think that's, the, that's one of the, the really important findings of the book, which is about the, whether history limits possibilities and really speaks to social science. And I wanted to come back to this uh, in closing. Because we, you know, we, we have in our, in our social science toolkit a set of ideas about how history limits possibilities. Um, but we've seen real choices being being made across more than a century and a half in two surprisingly similar places, different choices. And there's choices that have stretched or sometimes transcended the, uh, the constraints of culture and of institutions in sometimes sharply discontinuous ways. But they didn't follow any single institutional logic. They didn't follow uh, any single technological logic. At critical times, and, and you'll have to just take my word for this uh, because I didn't talk about all the cases, but at critical times, whether it was the choice of Mussolini for war in 1940, uh, or De Gasperi for Europe, which I did talk about, or Yoshida for free riding or cheap riding, which I did talk about. Uh, 
Um, there were plausible alternatives out there. Some leaders failed to perceive them. Uh, others understood them. So Cavour uh, didn't understand what Ito understood in the 1860s. Mutol Sanji understood something that uh, Rossi, Alessandro Rossi, didn't uh, in, the in the 1890s. And as I've already said, Fula uh, and Oketo had uh, different, different takeaways from the, the fall of the wall. So that history, rather than, 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 than limiting or channeling choice, which is, I think, a, a very popular approach to understanding and using it for political science is actually, I think, multiplies possibilities. And we don't want to miss uh, how history becomes, I don't want to say completely bottomless well, that's, that's a little hyperbolic, it's a lot hyperbolic, but you know, that's who I am. Um, but I don't want to say that. It, it's not a bottomless well of resources, but, but particularly able leaders can look and find things to use so that they don't have to bully and they don't have to buy, they can inspire. And inspiring is cheaper. And that's, at the end of the day, um, a, a really important uh, uh, lesson. Um, and the accompanying lesson, and really, truly the final point, is, is that, that there's an ethical claim about the need to understand leadership here, which is, which is to revive notions of individual responsibility and culpability um, at a time when each has been devalued, uh, especially in Japan and certainly in Italy, but also in the United States. So let me end with that. Apologize for having gone on longer than I think you bargained for. Thank you. Would you field your own questions? Sure, I'd be happy to. Any questions? Uh, yes, sir. Um, Could you tell me who all you are? When you... Uh, I'm Alex Hunt. Hello. Um, just I have one observation and one question that are kind of related. The observation is that you know, regarding the puzzle that social science tends to see constraints and common sense tends to think that leaders matter, I, mean, I wonder if that stems from a, a temporal asymmetry between the two, that um, social scientists are inherently backward-looking, past-oriented, because the past consensus is already determined it's closed. Okay? And so it makes sense that constraints loom large if we're trying to narrow down sort of the variation and sort of figure out exactly what happened and what happened. <coughs> sense, on the other hand, and leaders' own actions is forward-looking. Future is open, arguably, and undetermined in a sense. And so, uh, and moreover, for real-world actors, um, the past is not closed because they can reinterpret it, as you point out. So, in a sense, it's no surprise that social scientists can't really uh, make sense of leadership because um, they're trying to find causal laws that will stitch everything together very nicely, and that's, in a sense, antithetical to the project of leadership, which is to sort of create an open future and so on. That's the observation. I guess the, the question is, um, your language of stretching constraints, which I thought was really interesting, uh, seems to assume, though, that the constraints are somehow um, given or knowable objectively out there in the world. And I guess I'm wondering, how do we know a constraint when we mm. see it? In the sense that um, social constraints, arguably, are only constraints, or only knowable as constraints after the fact, from people trying to change something and failing. And likewise, agency and leadership might be seen as noble only after the fact that the leader tries something dramatic and it fails, and he's not seen as a leader, he's seen as a failure. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, um, how do we know the constraints and agency apart from what actually happens on the ground? That's a wonderful question. Um, I guess two short answers, maybe two with the, in both senses, both senses of the term. An answer that's too short and, and uh, an answer to each of the the questions. On the first one, I think you, you nailed it. I mean, this notion that social scientists see the past as closed is exactly right and exactly wrong. That's what's wrong, it seems to me, with, with what we teach and learn and 
learn as graduate students to teach as, as faculty members because the, the, the project is all about trying to establish um, for social science uh, the possibility that we can see the past as open. It's precisely, precise, it just cuts right to the core of what I'm trying to do. You, you, you understood that and, and I just wanted to reinforce it. The past is not closed. And theories that, I mean, that's, what, that's another way, I think, of formulating the same idea that I started with, which is that constraints are determine all important decisions. Um, the past is not closed. The past is what you make of it. That's Orwell again, and it's Machiavelli. Machiavelli got it. But social science, somehow, we've wrung it out of us, out of our understanding, uh, unfortunately. On the, the second point, um, I, I think that's exactly right. And here's where, the, here's where you know, you... you uh, the, the point being, uh, are constraints, how do you identify constraints ahead of time? Um, the answer is, I think, uh, uh, I, I, the answer is, the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, I think the social scientists in us of necessity are, are going back and trying to examine what's already been. We can, we can try uh, to predict, but, um, and we can have a great debate here about whether or not social science is and ought to be predictive. Uh, certainly we have, you know, that, that is, uh, there's, it's a conceit, I think, that it is effectively predictive. But um, maybe we can have a debate and some people won't see it as a conceit, but as sort of a central element of their identity. And we can have a good battle over it. Um, I think that the best we can do as social scientists is to go back, understand those constraints, and then try to, um, I think that then try to formulate them in ways that are that are generic, and, uh, and and then apply them to other cases so that we can build better theories. I'm not against theory building, but I think that you're not going to get there by uh, by by guessing at what the constraints are ahead of time. Randy, you can ask me the right question or the wrong question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, uh, well, what's the first one? I forgot what I asked you to ask me. Oh, but what is Japan's grant? Yeah. Oh, no, that wasn't the question. There was a more specific question, but go ahead. Well, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and now to the question you wanted to ask. Write it down and give it to me in advance. <laughs> um, I want my money back. Sort of comment, I mean, I'm working on a conclusion to a book, which I either rewrite. Um, and it, when I was reading the introduction, which I, I really enjoyed, um, I thought the comment is it's similar to what Alex is saying, that, uh, but in a different way. I mean, I think it's, you're posing structure, and I think this, you're doing it correctly. I mean, this, the way the field, at least international relations, are comparative. I don't know how comparative. In international relations, I think there's this notion that leaders and agency are somehow, is somehow antithetical to structure because the you know, structure constrains leaders that don't have choice. So, so you would think weak leaders, therefore, will be buffeted about by forces beyond their control, like automatons or as you described, a cork in the ocean or something. They're just, they have no, uh, they're just buffeted about. Okay. But I, I don't think actually, um, and when you look at the theories, and this is point of what I my book is that structure often is in international relations balancing or mm. if you look at Mearsheimer, it's it's expansion. Mm. States expand when they can. They these are very costly behaviors. 
And weak leaders don't expand. Weak leaders don't balance, even when they're threatened. Look at Britain and France in the interwar period. Weak leaders, you have this enormous draft. If that isn't a structural constraint, I don't know what is, of Hitlerism, right, or Mussolini. And yet they didn't balance because they were weak. So I think that if you, our notion that this somehow weak <coughs> leaders and structure go together, or, or to put another way, that strong leaders and structural incentives or constraints are somehow antithetical, I think is wrong. I think the two really should be married in a grander theory that says, you know, if, you know, the worst kind of leader is one that is weak and constrained by domestic forces and constrained at, at the international level. And, and the opposite would be, a, you know, a leader that's going to do everything we say in our theories is a strong leader of a unified country that has strong structural incentives. Really, what do you mean by weak and by strong? Well, I mean, I, this is similar to, I'm, I can't reiterate what he said, the, chap, the chapter is so well written, I would even bother to try to rewrite a word of it, but I mean, um, you know, the idea of inspiring heroic leaders, or like, I, I'm not actually arguing this concluding chapter, which is heretical, that, uh, because I'm a realist, that real, the best real estate is a fascist state. Because <laughs> you've got heroic vitalism, you've got um, this notion of, um, you, you know, unity, uh, a mythical past, um, you know, these, I, I have a list of like 20 words that just go perfectly with, with Mearsheim. You know, read Mearsheim's strategy of the great, you know, whatever it's called, the latest book that he's about. Right, and, and you know, that states always should be maximized, they're all revisions, they all maximize power, well that's a fascist state. You know, that, that's what they do. You know, if we lived in a world of fascist states, then everyone's loosely Hitler and states like that. Well, then sure, they would react just like Mearsheim. So I guess that's what I mean by a heroic sort of leader, one that can, you know, give the public something to, um, you know, unify around and, and um, you know, and a plan of action that's bold, that's going to entail costs, but that the public will willingly sacrifice and get behind them. Does that ever happen? You know, I mean, if you really, if you look at the, these cases where you can see surveys, presidents or American presidents or leaders in other countries willing to take bold actions, there's usually not uh, an enormous consensus on support. And they usually yeah. and they, but some of them depend on the mean, you know, Bush went ahead. Did did I, I just thought that, yeah, I know. It's, did what he did with the country. It, it's an argument about cost, and I, I you know, I, Respectfully, I think the Iraq war is a low-cost enterprise. I mean, you're talking about a thousand deaths. I mean, compare that to uh, the Battle of Stalingrad. How many people died in that battle? The Russian people. Some of the millions and millions and millions, right? I mean, I mean, you know, we can go into Vietnam. We lose, you know, we complain so hard, but we lost 55,000 troops over what eight years. I mean, compared to what Russians and Germans and French have lost recently, or even on show the Japanese in the Second World War. I mean, I don't think these are, you know, incredibly huge, costly decisions. I mean, we didn't go into thinking they would. I could listen to Bert. And <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bert. Um, let, me, let, let me just, to, to Randy's... Um, <laughs> I'm reminded. I'm reminded. Randy question. That's a Randy question. I love it. It's fine. I'm used to it. He'll tell you. <laughs> He'll tell you stories later. Um, no, 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 we're not going to go there. Uh, so, I was at the at, at APSA. It was about ten years ago. Some of you may have been at this. Bob Putnam was meeting, the author meeting his critics, and uh, he was just 
sliced and diced in order by Suzanne Berger, took them apart. Dita Scotchpole took them apart. Then J.Q. Wilson came in from the other side, just destroyed them. And he, he was, you know, I'm all, everyone's in the audience sitting there going, what in the world is, this is all about making democracy work. It was, it was, you know, he was just crucified up there. And I thought, what in the world is he going to say? And what he said was, well, this is all very helpful. Um, what I'd like to do, actually, rather than dwell on my last book, I'd like to talk about my <laughs> I just, I just thought it was brilliant. I'm not going to, I'm not going to actually do that today. But, no, 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 no. You just reminded me, you know. Um, but let's talk about Mussolini, actually, because you, you, you mentioned Mussolini. So here's, you know, fascists balance. Uh, so here's Mussolini, and it's May 1940. Uh, I go back to 1938, 39. Um, Mussolini uh, was playing Hamlet, and he could have done, he could have balanced, and he could have bandwagoned. He could have fallen for the the affection that was tossed his way by Churchill. I mean, Churchill was just, I mean, the Japanese metaphor is, gomasuru is, is um, how do you say in English? Uh, flattering. Flattering, what? Yeah. Brown nosing, that's even better. <laughs> you know, so Churchill, you know, you, you, you want the Mediterranean to be an Italian? We'll give you the Mediterranean. We'll work with the French. We'll get the French. You know, the efforts to get, to keep Mussolini out of that war were, there was a lot of work being done, a lot of hard work, diplomatic work being done. At the end of the day, and it was really unclear, I've got a, in the book somewhere, there's this marvelous cartoon of Mussolini, the pit in the pendulum, it was called. And he was, he was, there's this pendulum swinging over his head, and he, he asks, the bubble over his head is, which way should I jump? And it's toward Hitler or toward the Allies. Which way should I, mean, if you can find it, that'd be great. It's, it's a gorgeous cartoon. But it really does, there it is. Uh, no, no, not, not, not that one. The one with Mussolini in the, in the pendulum over his head. That's a little later. What year is it? 1940. Uh, the cartoon may have been 38-ish, 39. I'm not sure. That's a good question. But the point is, he finally jumped. But he didn't have to jump in that direction. There was plenty of, you could, if I, we were writing the history now, it's back to Alex's question. If we're writing it now, there it is. Which way should I jump? And, and it's, it's wonderful. There was nothing predetermined about that choice, but everything consequential about it. Everything consequential about it. And so I'm not so sure. I mean, you talk about, you know, yeah, you're realist and you're balance of power, and I, I understand all of that. But, you know, it doesn't tell us about enough about what actual choices leaders are going to make to balance and bandwagon. Maybe prior to 35, but it's clear after 1935 that if Mussolini wanted that second Roman Empire, he couldn't get it by aligning with France and Britain, who had so many interests in the Mediterranean. Whatever you want in the Mediterranean. He actually actually mobilized troops up into the Brenner Pass earlier, 32. He actually, when, when Hitler looked like he was coming through, Mussolini sent troops out to meet him, okay? Fast forward a little bit. Um, you've got a situation in which the, it's not so clear that the, the French and the English were going to deny him goodies in the Mediterranean. They were promising him goodies in the Mediterranean. when he went to war with okay. in 36, and then it became clear that he couldn't have what he wanted in North Africa or Mediterranean. So Hitler, I know the Dolphus Austria thing happened before 1935. Yeah, it did. It did. 
And it, look, I, I just don't think that we know enough, that, that, not that we know enough, it's not a matter of empirical knowledge at this point, that, we, that our theories are powerful enough to tell us how hard leaders are going to choose for balancing. We could, we could disagree as to whether or not they're going to choose to balance or bandwagon, but the question of how hard they'll balance, what kind of resources they'll, they will uh, dedicate to that balancing effort, whether or not they'll avoid it, or how long they'll avoid it. We don't have a structural explanation for that stuff. I don't think. I, I look forward to reading your next book. No, but I just don't think we have it. I just don't think we've got it. Yeah. Uh, my name is Nanako, and I'm from Japan. And I want to explain my That's a really good question. This actually comes up from time to time, which is people say to me, look, you know, you compared the communist parties because they both use the hammer and sickle in their iconography, but the functional equivalent of the PCI in Japan was not the Communist Party of Japan, but the Socialist Party, the Japan Socialist Party. That's a good, it's, it's right. I mean, there's, there's truth in that. Um, but, uh, and I'm not going to try to defend the choice, but I want to speak more directly to your question, which is, whether there was space for the communists to move. And for this, you really have to go back and look at the sequencing of events. It's 1989 when the wall comes down. By that time, the Socialist Party had ceased to be a political force in Japan. And actually, that was the one chapter I didn't write in this book. This book is it's a monst it's monstrously long already. But there was one more chapter I wrote half up, which I didn't put in there. It was, it was going to be on the Socialist Party and what happened to it. Uh, and its failure of leadership. And I was going to compare it to Andreotti in, in Italy. Um, uh, what happened to it, and this is really very relevant to your question, was in the early 1980s, a man named Nakasone Yasuhiro, Prime Minister Nakasone, found his way to power on the, in alliance with big business. The Keidanmen, Doko Toshio, the chairman of Keidanmen, had tried out another LDP leader, Suzuki uh, Zenko, who failed to make good on the promise to reconstruct the, the finances of, of Japan, uh, to, 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 to reduce taxes and so forth. Um, that reconstruction effort was picked up by Nakasone, and it was 
a genius of leadership. I ended up writing that half of the chapter, ended up in the Journal of, if you're interested, the Journal of Japanese Studies, January last year, it was published. And here's what he did. He took up the, the, the cudgel of reconstruction of the Japanese na- national finances and administrative reform. Okay, administrative reform. In so doing, it, he was privatizing the national railways and he privatized, uh, he wanted to privatize the Postal Service, National Railways, and NTT, the tele- telecom monopoly. In the process of privatizing them, which he, which he succeeded in partly in doing, in the process of doing that, the, he was destroying the political base of the Socialist Party because it was Sohyo. It was, it was the Federation of Trade Unions, which were based in the publicly owned sector. When the publicly owned sector was no longer publicly owned, Sohyo didn't exist anymore. Rengo took over. Now, this is before 1989. Rengo comes in. Rengo comes in. It's very conciliatory. It's conservative. It's sucking up to, uh, to the right. It's no longer a force for labor. It's gone. The left was destroyed. So, to make a long story short, actually to continue the long story, I suppose, I interviewed Nakasone, and I said, you know, when you did administrative reform, uh, you destroyed Sohyo. When you destroyed Sohyo, the Socialist Party went away. I said, was that your goal from the beginning? I mean, that's what you're interested in leadership. You want to know, did you have a strategy? Was that the strategy or just a byproduct of having done something? Anyone who works on leadership, that's what you care about. You, did, you know, was there an ends-means connection here? And he looked at me and he said, son, I was astonished. I never met this guy. He said, son, did you know that I had been the Minister of Transportation in the, uh, I guess it was the Ikeda cabinet? And I said, well, yeah, I I did know that. He said, well, then you knew that the Reds, Akane, the Reds were all over me. And he said, I swore if I ever got the chance, I would destroy them. Whoa, so I'm writing. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking notes like crazy. And, uh, and, I, and he stopped, and I, I looked at him and I said, Sorede? And? He said, mm, Yap does all. I did it. I said, Whoa. So, you know, you had this, it's one of those rare occasions when you're doing interviews in, in a ja- with Japanese politicians when the guy is old enough and doesn't care so much and he's not, he's not an active politician, and he's telling you the truth. He's pretty still alive, still around. Actually, <laughs> so the point, the point of all of this is to say that the socialists had been destroyed as a political force by then, and there was nothing to the, to the immediate right of the Communist Party in 1989. Socialists weren't really there anymore. They could have moved. There were places to go. It wasn't like the socialists were, were out there with their elbows blocking entry for the Communist Party. The Communist Party, supported by a, a fairly reliable 10-ish, 8-ish percent of the Japanese electric, election after election, people, very idealistic people. These are not ideologically rigid Marxist, Leninist. I mean, it's not who, not who they are. And um, the possibility then of their joining their idealism and making something out of a coalition with the center-left a la Italy was there at that time, because the socialists had been beaten up so badly, uh, they didn't just didn't do it. Didn't have the they didn't have the uh, the sense, the idea. Bert, uh, th- let me puzzle along with you and ask you a specific question. Uh, 
everybody's book for them. This is, this is hard. Um, I guess I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that it's the constraints that killed energy policy for Carter and the constraints that killed uh, health policy for, for Clinton. Um, I guess I can be convinced that they were. I, as I said in the talk, I, you know, I believe constraints matter. I guess I was looking at the other side of the ledger, which is that even when constraints matter, there are at times. I, I agree with you. You want to you want to find out what times and when and under what circumstances. I, I, I know that, that that that's really important, and I believe in the enterprise, social science. 
But um, I don't know these cases well enough to be able to agree with you that it was that it was the constraints that did it, or that it was simply a failure of their their leadership. Uh, and to know how to how to uh, sort through that is uh, is something I'd have to spend more time thinking thinking about. Um, one place to start thinking about it, it seems to me, is with your claim that there's something about the, say, the post-war uh, that um, structurally loosens the constraints. I, that's not what I found, in, at least not for only for the United. You can only say that at the United States. This is Randy's point. Out, maybe, I, you know, it's only the United States where the constraints were loosened. But you get you get this mega power. It gets more and more mega over time, um, and the constraints get looser and looser for the United States and international affairs. You do, to this point, whatever the hell it wants, right, now and has. But um, it's not true of Italy. It's not true of Japan. The constraints were, if anything, just as great in 1954 as they were in, in uh, 1934 uh, for these two countries. They, they were huge constraints. And yet, that notwithstanding, things could be, you know, opportunities could be created or taken advantage of. All right. Um, so I guess I would I would discount uh, the grand structural feature of the Cold War in, in, in this in these cases, especially in these cases. Um, I don't know how to I don't know how to how to answer answer this. You asked about modalities. We could talk a little bit about modalities. So what do creative what might creative leaders have done? What might they have used? to have succeeded against the constraints that it looks like uh, forced their failure. And what I did in the book was try to hone, try to carve out three fundamental modalities of leadership. I'm not sure it's an exhaustive list, but let me try it out on you. Um, the first, and I've mentioned it in the talk. I mean, the first is uh, bullying. Uh, that lead, there are, there, you could just, you know, you can compel people to do things. And Mussolini did a lot of that. That's not all that he did, as I've already explained. But, you know, you, you can compel. You can bully. You can buy. Right? You can just, you, you know, some people say, well, you can persuade. But, you know, sometimes you persuade by giving things to people and promising. You're buying. You're trading. And the, the, the one that I focused on in the book is, the, is this notion of inspiration. Um, uh, you, in, in particular, one form of inspiration, which was using the past as a way to justify getting to the... It's cheaper. It's less... It's more efficient. Now, I would take each of these three, again, if I were armed with any knowledge whatsoever of the cases, I would take these three modalities, I would I would put them as a template upon the cases and say, well, you know, what was the... Was there not enough inspiration? Were they focusing too much on... Did Clinton try to buy when he should have been trying to use his moral suasion, a moral authority... Was there was there another way to go at it? Was the the mix of tools, the mix of modalities, just wrong? And if you then you look at the mix of modalities and say, you know, if he had used a little more of the one and a little less of the other, he might have had more success despite the constraints. Then you could say something about it, that's systematic, comparative, and um, and somewhat more fine grained than just that the constraints overwhelm these leaders. But Dick, does it matter what you're pushing? In the end, I mean, like, oh, it sure. sounds like it's sure. just the means you can push. No, 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 that's right. You're an expert body. No, 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 no. yeah, yeah. that's a good uh, point. It's past 5 o'clock. Oh, my goodness gracious. We have a rule that we stop at 5 o'clock. There's also um, a reception waiting out there, so there's plenty of opportunity to continue. Okay, well, I apologize for going on. I think it should be out here. I think it should be in the corridor to the left, probably. But good conversation. Thank you very much.
great cheese and wine. Cheese and wine is great. Bill had cut it all himself. I bought it. I bought it. Of course. Gloria Westerson what is your name? How do you spell Johanna so I can I just make sure I have Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-Y-O-H-A-N-